Hello and welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. This podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology both in our context and beyond. everybody and welcome back after a long wait for reformed podmatics episode 103 i am pastor zach and i'm pastor mark and today we are going to be again using a fielded question from our audience we have a question who has come in from ann anthony uh, a local friend of ours here in ripon about the sign gifts the spiritual sign gifts Uh, particularly of speaking in tongues, of prophecy, healings, and so on. And so this is a huge question. Uh, This is a question that, uh, frankly, I'm surprised hasn't been asked earlier, uh, because it's often a question that's very much on the forefront of many Christians' minds, particularly those who have uh, any interaction, really, with charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a question that I personally have have thought much about, and so yeah, it's, I think this is an important episode because it's a it's a subject that many people really it wears on them, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, of pressure that people can feel, and so that it it often makes people yeah want to really have to get good answers, and it, it something that for me has drove me to the word, and I hope that that's exactly what we do today as well. Yeah, it's not just an American question either. This is a worldwide question that Christians are asking in Africa and Latin America and Asia, um, certainly also in our North American context as well. And so, um, yeah, we're going to—we we don't know exactly where the conversation's going to go today. Um, <laughs> that is true. Uh, we, we have some lots in front of us. I have the position of the CRC on Pentecostalism in front of me, and um, First Corinthians— of course, is really the the bedrock text, First uh, Corinthians twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. When you're thinking about this question and uh, what it looks like in the the New Testament church, mm-hmm. and so um, we've got a lot in front of us, and we don't know exactly what we're going to get through. We're we're going to go, but just like Zach said, we're going to rely on Scripture and a lot of Reformed theology here. Yeah, so I think it's good if we start out by asking, what are the sign gifts? I've sort of mentioned them already, but what are Speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing. healing. Yeah. Um, what would be your thoughts if somebody were to ask you, what are tongues? Which is actually a very controversial question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, th- I think you'd, you do want to go to the Bible right away when somebody would ask you that. Uh, that's not always where people go as they're thinking about how to answer that question. They would first think about their experience, um, particularly their experience in maybe a charismatic context where uh, speaking in tongues um, pretty much, uh, maybe not for every single church, but in in the examples that I've seen and in most uh, cases, it's what sounds like gibberish mm-hmm. to an English-speaking person. It is speaking in a spiritual language that we cannot understand, but mm-hmm. is a language that God can understand. 
and I've often heard it pitched as being an angelic language because yeah. of First Corinthians one verse, I believe verse two. Sure, and so um, we're going to take the position that in at Pentecost, and it seems as though in First Corinthians, tongues are are meant to be interpreted by the people who are in uh, attendance at worship, and uh, we could think also of that sermon that Peter gave um, on, at Pentecost where people who were from different lands heard the gospel in their own language and were just amazed that these Galilean fishermen could, could speak so eloquently to them the gospel message about Jesus. So uh, it seems that that is the the uh, the teaching of First Corinthians, and um, it's it's really in um, chapter twelve, where uh, or sorry, chapter fourteen, where you mm-hmm. see some of that teaching come through. Yeah, twelve through fourteen, really twelve, thirteen, and fourteen are all really important. It was chapter thirteen, verse one, that I am thinking of, where I've heard uh, Pentecostal or charismatic friends of mine talk about angelic languages. Uh, Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of mankind or of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So they'll say here, okay, well, this must mean that there's normal human languages, like what we speak here on earth, Mm. that's not speaking in tongues, and then there's the tongues of angels, that's what speaking in tongues is. So tongues as the miraculous gift of knowing how, they would say, to speak in that angelic or spiritual language. But I think you're right. I... In my study of this particular issue, I think it's quite clear, actually, from Scripture that speaking in tongues, the the gift of glossolalia, which is the Greek word that, that yeah. is used here, uh, is, I think, very clearly the gift of knowing how to speak in a miraculous way, in a moment's notice, another human language that you did not previously or hitherto speak mm. uh, until the moment in which it was given to you to speak that way, which is what we see exactly at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We also see Paul speaking of such a gift in Act, or in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, where he talks in verses 6 through 12 uh, about speaking in a known language and how that is what tongues were. Um, and so you have to speak in a language that is interpreted by somebody who's there to hear you. Um, and so I think we can be very sure and very confident that tongues is a gift of speaking in another known human language. Now, I know yeah. that there are people who are close to me who are friends sure. of mine who speak in tongues. They have what they consider to be a gift, and they speak in the angelic language. And so I know what I'm saying here is very controversial for some people mm-hmm. and may even be considered quite offensive. Yeah, and Paul anticipates that, actually, if you were just to continue reading 1 Corinthians 14, um, the person would say, yeah, but, but what about when I pray and I I say these, you know, it's, it sound, I've, I've heard it before, it sounds like, like, it almost sounds like that, maybe a little bit more like Hebrew than what I just did, um, more guttural sounds, perhaps, but um, somebody would say, well, what about that? Uh, to which Paul continues... Um, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. So it, the, the intention is for interpretation, not just for uh, ecstatic utterance. Yeah. Um, and then he continues, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
So what should I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. And so uh, he says, if you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. And so um, the, the intention is, is to, uh, to edify the church mm-hmm. um, in, in public in, and with understanding. I think that that's one of the keys. Um, just read a book on prayer by John Bunyan, the Puritan um, author, of course, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and he really hones in on this pray in the Spirit, and so there is a, certainly a spiritual element to prayer, uh, but he, he really focuses also on and with understanding. And there, there's, a, um, there's an element there to praying in tongues that is not understandable even to the person who is praying. Mm. And so uh, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that those people who are doing that are sinning, uh, but I am... I do want to go with the word, which calls us to pray in the spirit and with our with our minds yeah. as well. You know, one of the most important things to keep in mind with any spiritual gift, not just the so-called sign gifts uh, or the miraculous spiritual gifts, there's different ways of categorizing them, uh, is to think of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 17, 7. So we're kind of jumping around here between these chapters, but yeah. these chapters are all very important. Yeah. This verse says, and this is, I, th- I take this to be a law about how we should think of the spiritual gifts. Paul says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now that's really important. The gifts are given by the Spirit for the common good or for the edification of all the believers. And so no gift is given to anyone for their own sake. Uh, No one is given the gift of teaching so that they may teach themselves. Mm. Uh, They are given the gift of teaching so that they may study and then teach others. Uh, Nobody is given the gift of generosity so they can be generous with themselves. That sounds like the modern self-care movement. I'm going to be generous with myself. Giving myself (laughs) a facial and a spa day. Um, (laughs) Nobody has the spiritual gift of discernment so they can just discern for themselves. They're supposed to be discerning for the sake of the common good. And so the same is true when it comes to tongues. This is why... I am skeptical of the idea of praying in tongues and having it be my personal, private prayer language, um, because no gift was given to anyone that is just for personal, private growth. Uh, It's supposed to be used for the edification of others. And tongues, as we see in the book of Acts, are the speaking in other languages, other human languages, for the sake of other people to hear and understand the gospel. Yeah, so we've we've tipped our our hand here to what we believe concerning <laughs> yeah. uh, what is called since cessationism or continuationism. So to introduce maybe some theological terms to to people who who don't read systematic theology books or uh, pay a lot of attention to these things, maybe this is an introduction to uh, what is called pneumatology. Um, pneumatology is uh, a theology of the spirit. Pneuma means spirit in Greek. And um, and so this is a, a category of pneumatology. And uh, cessationists believe that with the, um, with the death of the apostles, the first generation of Christians, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the charismatic uh, sign gives 
gifts also died. Um, some prominent cessationists would be John Calvin, and John MacArthur would probably be the most popular cessationist in evangelical Christianity today. Um, and he is a He's not just a passive cessationist. He is a very active cessationist who is opposed to um, the charismatic church, I would say, in general. Um, Wrote a book called Charismatic Chaos, another popular book Mm -hmm. called Strange Fire. And um, and so uh, he he would believe that tongues, healing, um, prophecy, as it's understood by sort of in Pentecostal circles, uh, is no longer happening, and and he would even go so far as to say it is demonic when mm-hmm. um, when it is occurring in a in a church. It is uh, people fooling themselves, or maybe even being under the influence of other spiritual forces. So uh, he's very aggressive on that. Uh, but you've already heard us say, um, I think that that uh, we are both continuationists to some extent. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, the continuationist believes that these these gifts, um, generally speaking, uh, could be present in a church in in, the, in a uh, in a real church in the twentieth century twenty first century <laughs> in California, for example. Um, I, I guess I would want to qualify that by saying I I don't believe that a person has an apostolic gift of healing, for example. Um, it, it does not seem that the Apostle Paul encourages people to seek that gift, um, whereas it does, he does very clearly encourage people to seek the gift of tongues, again, for the sake of building up the body. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, prophecy. Yeah, and prophecy. And so we would have... Um, uh, I, I hold to a continuationist belief, um, but also recognize that these things can be manipulated, can really go off the rails in some extremely dangerous ways, and that could lead to a lot of people being confused even about what the gospel is. Yeah, so if we ask the question, do these gifts exist today, there's really two kinds of Christians. There's those who say yes, and there's those who say no. Um, and so of those who say yes, there is there are those who give mm-hmm. an unambiguous yes, uh, an unqualified yes. Absolutely. Who would almost use the term apostles even today for yeah, some people. And some of them yeah. do. They have their church governance will include apostles, though they believe that that, uh, that office is a spiritual gift, sort so to speak. And mm. so that has passed on all the way up until today. Yeah. Uh, there was an old metal band that I used to listen to, a Christian band called For Today. I wonder if their name had anything to do with spiritual gifts being For Today. <laughs> sure. I don't know. Uh, but they were very Pentecostal, and um, they would often talk about their apostles. Um, and what they meant by that was basically what we would say as our, our pastors or mm. what have you. Um, and I believe the vocalist has gone on to become a self-proclaimed apostle now. I'm not sure. I don't want to misspeak. Um so that would be one camp, and we could roughly call them the charismatic or Pentecostal camp, although those are not exactly the same thing. Pentecostal yeah. typically means uh, more traditional, and mm-hmm. the Pentecostal movement really began right around the turn of the 20th century, um, really with the Azusa Street re- revivals. And this, is, this is where we get the sort of holy rollers. A lot of Pentecostals, you could tell by their dress the difference mm-hmm. between Pentecostals and charismatics. Mm-hmm. Pentecostals will be more straight-laced, suits, ties 
size and so on. Charismatics are the more modern, uh, non-denominational version, sort of like Hillsong you could mm. you could think of, or of um, the the Jesus movement, mm-hmm. um, or not the Jesus movement, the Jesus people. Sorry, sure, sure. Um, and <laughs> yeah, Bill Johnson up in Reading, uh, Bethel Church. Right. That's the more of the charismatic thing. But as a whole, they all very unambiguously say yes, they do, these gifts do exist. And then yes, the continuationist group, which gives a what I would consider a discerning or a qualified yes, and that's where we fall. And then there's the cessationists who give the unambiguous no. So really those are the the three groups. They fall into those two categories. That's helpful for mapping it out, I think. Um, Mark and I are, as Mark has said, continuationists. Now, I'm curious, Mark, how cautious are you (laughs) as a continuationist? I think that there's a a scale or a spectrum here. Uh, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts there. So... When I read that, the Apostle Paul says the church in Corinth should seek these gifts. Um, I believe that 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 passage is encouraging a believer today to Mm -hmm. ask for these gifts for the building up of the church. Um, I don't. I think that some people would read that as a promise that that it'll be there all the time. Hmm. Um, You know, people who listen to this podcast, many of many of them attend our church and would recognize that people yeah. don't speak in tongues at Almond Valley. Um, and so maybe it's something that we need to pray for more, we be more open to it. I, I think a, a big factor in my continuationism is a belief in the glory of God, the unpredictability in some ways of God. Um, hmm. I know that as, as Reformed people... Uh, sometimes we would prefer that God fits in, I don't, I don't usually like this term, but I guess I'll use it, that he fits in a box, and we sort of keep him in the box, and um, we, we do what C.S. Lewis warns against, we domesticate God, we, we turn him into this predictable um, you know, thing or force or helper who's just going to always act in the same way. And, and I do believe that revivals have happened in history, hmm. um, and and that they are real revivals. So I believe in the First Great Awakening, that, that mm-hmm. there was an outpouring of the Spirit in, in England and in New England, and really even throughout America, and that that was a movement of the Spirit to draw people to Christ and hmm. into the Church. And so I wouldn't say I, I expect that to happen. But yeah. I, I do believe that that could happen, and that it's even something that we should pray for. We should pray for not just personal revival, but yeah. a communal revival that is evident to people, to our neighbors, that they would say what Paul says. People will say when people are speaking in tongues that somebody would come in and say, God is really among you, <laughs> and that it would just be undeniable because something supernatural and different, and I would even say humanly unpredictable would be occurring there. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you, as a general rule for you, your supernatural view of the world 
deeply informs your openness to the gifts. Yeah, that's being, a good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, my simple way of explaining it. <laughs> no, that's good. You are very open to God being God, doing things that are unbelievable, hard to believe, that yeah. are miraculous, that are marvelous, and things that are strange to our normal, ordinary, daily lives. Um, and so I, therefore, you're open to it. Yeah, I, I would even go so far as to say... Uh, uh, this might sound a little bit political, but um, there's a certain there's a kind of white American way, European way of thinking about God that is very flattened and very enlightenment yeah. informed, yeah. and very structured. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, there is a more Catholic view of, mm-hmm. and I don't mean Roman Catholic, I mean Catholic, uh, where uh, it seems like just about every other culture in the world, again, Asian, Latin American. Uh, African, um, they're pretty open to mm-hmm. God. We, when we go to church today, mm-hmm. something amazing might happen. Mm-hmm. There could be conversions, immediate mm-hmm. baptisms. Mm-hmm. There could be uh, weeping. Uh, there yeah. could be shouting out. And uh, I, I do think something like that really could happen. And and the reason that I think some people don't believe in that, to be quite honest could be a little bit more cultural than biblical because hmm. they would prefer things to be nice and orderly. You know, personally, and the reason I asked you that question is because I struggle with being a continuationist. Hmm. I, I guess I would say I'm a somewhat begrudging continuationist <laughs> uh, because I think it would be neat and clean to be a cessationist. Yeah. And it would, it would, because cessationism is in the one sense, it's kind of like an apologetic for why your church is not super spiritual and it's very orderly. So people who are who are more who are more cessationist in their outlook are going to have churches typically that are very orderly, and that's their. It's almost in a way of of defending their orderliness. And First Corinthians fourteen talks about the value of orderliness yeah. in the service. Yeah. And so it's not like they're crazy or that they're they're out there or anything. Yeah, unhinged. Yeah, right. Uh, but it also does seem like a way of, of explaining a way why nothing very miraculous can happen at your church. Uh, and it does seem like it's even without trying to be uh, sort of a, a, an enlightenment, a post-enlightenment sort of outlook, the cessationist outlook. And so I fall into the continuationist outlook because really I don't think that there's a biblical argument that persuasively argues me into uh, being a cessationist. The real, the only real one that I know of is 1 Corinthians 13, verse sure. 8, sure. where Paul says, love never ends. He's talking in 1 Corinthians 13 about how above all the gifts, love is more important. And so he gives us the famous passage about love, which is read at every wedding. He finishes that passage with the words, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So the question is, when will these things pass yeah. away or cease? Uh, Hence so Paul, the term cessationism, yes, even. Yes, correct. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. So verse 9 he continues, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So it has been argued that this means what the perfect comes, the perfect means the completion of the New Testament canon. Um, and that would be MacArthur's argument, as far as I understand it. Uh, I yeah. think that's a stretch. Yeah. That is, 
I would like that to that'd be a nice little bow tie I could put on my cessationism, but I don't think that that verse bears the weight of that of that theological outlook or view. And so I I cannot take it. And I say that I'm begrudging because personally, and I'll be honest, I have a past of, with mm. uh, with some Pentecostal. I was never in a Pentecostal church, but I had plenty of Pentecostal friends that I interacted with, and would often feel like I was a junior varsity Christian. That's how I would explain it. I wasn't quite as spiritual or as holy as them uh, because I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't have the gift of healing. Um, I even I, I once saw someone uh, prophesy in tongues and then interpret his own prophecy, which happened to be a human language. It was in it was clearly in um, in Hebrew, um, and so that was interesting. Mm. And so th- yeah, that was a pretty incredible moment. Uh, I'm still yeah. not sure what to make of it, mm. uh, but. I, I've seen a lot of abuse of these yeah. things. That's yeah. what I want to say. That wasn't even the worst. That wasn't. That wasn't really a bad moment. That was just an interesting moment. Sure. But I've seen a lot of of the abuse of it and sort of uh, soliciting your power to heal. I, I've known hard Christian hardcore bands for whatever reason. A lot of Christian hardcore that I grew up listening to was very very Pentecostal, and so a lot of them would talk about their power to heal. And if you stayed after the show, they might heal you. Wow. And. Yeah, it was a big thing. Um, and yeah, I'm not on board like with I that. Was never quite <laughs> there. Yeah. And so for for years, I sort of carried in me this this feeling of I must not be a very very solid Christian. I had I've had people pray for healing for me when I was sick and I didn't get healed, so I must not believe. And so yeah, my own disposition is not one of being very positive towards it. Um, I guess so that makes me very cautious with it. Yeah. But theologically, I don't think that there's any argument about for cessationism that has ever really convinced me. Um, well, and uh, yeah. you're you're pointing out something I think really helpful that both pe- people could end up in one camp or the other, really as a reaction, mm-hmm. more so than for the positive reason of finding scriptural evidence. Yeah. So, uh, somebody who had a bad experience in a charismatic church could could lean towards cessationism, and that's totally. happening a lot with people who are attracted to John MacArthur right now and read Strange Fire, and yep. that describes a lot of the abuses that they saw in the charismatic church, which were real and, yeah. and a problem. And so we would confirm as continuationists that those thing, those abuses are real problems. Um, but mm-hmm. then uh, this, the same thing could also happen, that somebody was in a cessationist church and, Something um, happened that they couldn't explain, right? Or, or it was just a bad experience, or maybe it was that, too rigid. That church was not a healthy church. Yeah, there was an idolatry of orderliness, or it, what have you. Yeah, and then maybe the spirit really was not in that church, and so yeah. um, then impugning that theology um, mm-hmm. and falling way into the charismatic movement, almost as a a prideful. Uh, uh, reaction against all those people who are just, you know, they show up for church and nothing mm-hmm. exciting ever happens, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, on both sides, you could have a reaction against the other, but what we want to encourage listeners, maybe even listeners who would disagree with us, is to create a, 
a positive theology of this based mm-hmm. on scripture and and of course based on the teaching of the the Catholic Church and uh, we would suggest also reformed theologians and so um, mm-hmm. I, I like your story because um, it really does speak to how powerful experience is in how we interpret or how we develop our theology which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily bad but should always uh, be the the handmaiden of of biblical theology right right yeah it's sort of the Wesleyan quadrilateral where they talk about scripture, I believe it's tradition, reason, and then they add experience, but experience doesn't mm. interpret the others, Yeah. Uh, but it's a part of the process. And I think that there's there's something to that. Uh, I'm not a Wesleyan, but I, I remember hearing about that. Um, our experience is important, but, but that's another interesting point here is that it's, it's fascinating to me that the charismatic Pentecostal movement really only, as we know it, took off in the 20th century. Mm, mm. Prior to that, it isn't to say that there weren't ecstatic languages or ec- like ecstatic forms of Christian pietism that date back to the beginning. There were, there were out, uh, there would be groups here and there throughout Christian history, uh, one of them being the Anabaptists, so the radical reformers and the Reformation uh, sort of would be a little bit ecstatic uh, and would sometimes prophesy or believe that they had the gift of prophecy. There was some groups in the early, early church that were always kind of on the margins of the Orthodox or Catholic church uh, that would speak in tongues, but for the most part, it's the 21st century or 20th century and 21st century where these things have really kicked into high gear. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but wonder if there's something about our expressive individualist culture uh, and the wanting to manifest on the outside what is what is in our souls and our spirits and right. our emotions. And so it just it just makes sense to me that in the 21st and 20th centuries. Uh, these these gifts have really taken off, and sometimes that makes me a little bit skeptical of them, uh, because very often spiritual gifts, because of their miraculousness, have been used to display the holiness or so so called holiness of those who display them, hmm. and it can be a very uh, conceited or puffed up. Uh, sort of thing that it's it's a thinly veiled uh, <laughs> yeah. uh selfishness look at me yeah. or vain glory yeah. yeah and that's again that's not the point of them the point of them is to edify christians around us and so and, and also i think that this is important to say i think generally looking at the book of acts which we've been doing in the, our sunday evenings it's pretty clear that the gifts these spiritual sign gifts the miraculous gifts are very often pointing towards something and authenticating something. Mm-hmm. They're being used to make it clear that the message of the gospel, which is primary and central to the apostolic work that was happening, that was that was only being supported by these gifts. These gift gifts were adding attestation to the truthfulness of their message. Um, especially in a world where these kinds of manifestations would have been seen as being totally undeniable. This was a world that was much more, as Charles Taylor would put it, porous. It was open to the spiritual world interacting with uh, with the physical world. Hmm. And so in a world where the gospel was spreading, 
what would help it spread? Well, very clearly in the ancient world, it would have been spread. It would have been helped by these gifts, which so I I think of the gifts as being uh, they sort of these spiritual gifts are very important in redemptive history and at moments of redemptive history. Cessationists would say the same thing, actually. But I think that they are also very missional gifts, and that's why I'm open to them still existing today. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody started speaking tongues in a language that they didn't know so that they could tell the gospel to somebody in another Mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it's a very evangelical gift, and it's a very um, beneficial gift. It's benefiting somebody else. It's not for yourself. It's for the sake of edifying others. Uh, yeah, a lot comes... Some thoughts. Oh, and, and a lot... Those good thoughts, a lot comes to mind as you're saying that. I think um, the Word of God being central, and we could even say the written Word of God continuing to be central, is yeah. is um, something that we would want to stress, especially among those who would be cheering our continuationism and um, might... You know, we are not baptizing everything that happens in those movements, uh, not at all. In fact, um, occasionally I will offer a critique of um, American evangelical kind of non-denominational charismatic Christianity in my sermons, if the text warrants it, um, because I think that there is an indulgence. There's an indulgent spirit often in that. Um, there's an attraction to the spectacular, mm-hmm. and, and that's not just in American Christianity, that's throughout the world. Yeah. And um, and so when I say that I would be open to revival happening, or I would even want revival to happen, I have to check my heart to, to discern, do I want that revival because I want that to be at my church, I want to be the revival church pastor, mm-hmm. or do I want it to happen because Christ's name is so exalted and glorious that... Uh, he deserves glory in the world and would be glorified through a changed and transformed community. I hope that that's the reason that I would want to see um, a powerful manifestation of the Spirit in a church, um, and not the spectacular, sort of the, yeah. the spectacle of it, which is yeah. exciting. <clears throat> it is exciting. I mean, that's why people go to concerts. That's why they go to music festivals, because they are so spectacular. People want to say, I was at Woodstock 99, or I was at... I was at that place when that thing happened, Um, you know, and they've been saying that for a very long time, especially I would even say media increases our desire to be, you know, Mm -hmm. as what they say, I haven't seen Hamilton, but they say, in the room where it happens, right? Isn't that kind of a a line from there, apparently? I've never, that's all I've heard from it, basically, but uh, to be be there, you know, when that big thing occurred, that desire in and of itself is really not that healthy of a desire. And uh, what we are devoted to is uh, the Word of God, and if the Lord should desire to use that in in an evidently supernatural way, Hmm. an unpredictable way, I think we should be open to that based on what we read in Scripture, not just the New Testament, but certainly the Old Testament as well, where lives are changed as God's Word goes out. so uh, that's that desire for the spectacular, I think, is maybe hmm. one of the warnings that we would want to give of of the uh, the movement, um, and I, maybe part of the reason that it's so popular in America. 
Yeah, it's like Simon the Magician in the Book of Acts, who, yeah. who seeks the power so he can do these amazing, miracle, miraculous things, and that's a very wicked um, desire. Uh, yeah, he and, wants to purchase it. Yeah, interestingly, it, and it makes us think. Uh, at least for me, it makes me appreciate the Reformed tradition all the more because the Reformed tradition is not a anti-Holy Spirit tradition. In fact, right. John Calvin has been rightly called, I believe, even as a cessationist, the the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, the Reformed tradition has always thought very, very deeply about what does the Spirit do? Mm -hmm. Who is the Spirit and what does He do? Is His main work to make us speak in tongues? No, it's not. It's not to make us speak in tongues. Uh, It's to change our hearts. It's to transform us. It's to regenerate our dead hearts and make them living hearts, hearts that are... are, in love with Christ, hearts mm-hmm. that beat for Christ, hearts that are that are being changed day by day, hearts that repent of our w- wickedness, hearts that uh, turn from our sin and turn towards life in Christ and turn towards his body and so on. All of those things are far more spiritual, I would say, and far more important than whether or not somebody speaks in tongues. And so the Reformed tradition, I think, has helped, it can help us have a proper perspective on all of these things. And it helps us to see that these miraculous sign gifts, whether or not they may exist, they are not the main point. Yeah. Um, they, the, If they do exist, I think then we should seek them, as Paul says yeah. uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, but the Paul, for Paul... it's If you were to stack up all of Paul's writing and try to find the writing where he talks about these things, it would be overwhelmingly less pages than, yeah, than yeah. the pages of his writing on the basic Christian truths of repentance and justification yeah. and sanctification and union with Christ. Uh, he doesn't. It's interesting that Paul doesn't talk about these gifts in the book of Romans, for example. Hmm. I don't even think he talks about them in Romans chapter 12, where he talks about spiritual gifts. Sure. He talks about spiritual gifts that aren't these so-called sign gifts. He talks about the gifts of generosity and teaching and so on. Yeah. That's really interesting to me that these gifts don't come up a whole lot. Um, I think that fact alone should help us have a proper perspective that while they may be helpful and can be uh, a good thing in the preaching of the gospel, um, they shouldn't be something we're overly emphasizing. And I think that's where the Pentecostal and charismatic group goes wrong is that they make them out to be a clear sign of one's spirituality and your Christianness and your salvation. And I think that that's highly problematic. Yeah. I think if, if listeners pull one message away from this podcast, uh, it would be that if you have not spoken in tongues, if you've not seen a healing in your church, it does not mean that you are not a you are not born again. Absolutely, um, you can be regenerate, you can be alive, you can be a new creation, and not speak in tongues and not have these powerful gifts of the spirit. So I think that that is one of the the worst. Um, symptoms or the worst outcomes of the charismatic movement is that people who don't experience the spectacular regularly start to doubt if God is real or that they're born again. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that is uh, that is so clear 
that it's clear in Paul's teaching on this very topic that not everyone will do this. Mm-hmm. And um, I would even go so far as to say that very few uh, yeah. will likely do this. So yeah, Miraculous things are just that. They're miraculous. Exactly. If they become ordinary, you probably have an issue. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like that that new trend of calling everything an everyday miracle, you know, yeah. the, the miracle of birth. It's like, look, childbirth is amazing. It, it's not a miracle, though. It's, it's how... Mm-hmm. Um, babies are born, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. that, and so um, we can think even of of, uh, of maybe other things in that sense of it is a great blessing that the, the Spirit works among a church in the regular means of grace, the preaching of the Word, the sacraments, and, um, and through prayer. And so uh, that is the, the daily bread of the Christian, um, not so much the the highs and lows, the mountaintops and the low valleys of um, that ecstatic experience you could have at camp or that you could have um, at a, a charismatic church followed by a long season of not speaking in tongues and not seeing healings and just sort of being hungry for the next mountaintop experience, yeah. to mix metaphors there. Um, but uh, so that that's the main takeaway I would want people to have. I know that actually a lot. Some of what we said has been pretty controversial. Oh, even yeah, I, I would guess that even though we've we've tackled some very controversial topics on this podcast, this might be yeah. one of the more controversial state sort of um, yeah, mo- statements that we've made of, yeah. of being continuationists. Um, and uh, I hope I would hope that people wouldn't hit. Uh, the stop button on your podcast at the end and say, those guys are just totally on board with all that Bill Johnson stuff up at Bethel and, um, you know, uncritical towards some of the, like, we are not on board with that, okay? It's, no, it's, no, it's not no. a good situation in a lot of charismatic contexts. It's uh, actually a lot of abuse of authority, a lot of manipulation and twisting of scripture, yeah. um, a lot of bad, bad teaching and manufacturing uh, in a human way, what is being told to people is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, revival, manufacturing revival. Yeah, and that is that is exactly what Simon the Sorcerer was guilty of, saying, I can yeah. purchase this power. Yeah. Um, now, they're not, well, they are quite literally purchasing it in some ways with uh, <laughs> some of the light shows and fog machines and all that stuff that is it, almost meant to make people think that uh, the Spirit is moving through uh, through a kind of again, manufactured, mechanical way. So we're, we're not on board with so much of what happens in the charismatic movement, but we are open to God doing <laughs> miraculous, supernatural things in a church on a, on a Sunday, um, on every other day of the week as well. And so those are our thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Over and out. No, yeah, I'm just right. kidding. Uh, but Mic yeah, drop. <laughs> we would we yeah. would love this. As you said, this is probably a more controversial issue. Uh, maybe it's not a high priority issue, so the controversy isn't the biggest deal in the world. But it's it's an issue that there's a lot of disagreement over. Um, and so we would love to receive feedback from anyone who's listened and who has thoughts. Uh, I I know full well that. I I'm open to hearing more yeah. sides. I'm open to hearing more discussion. I don't I don't take my position very 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 tightly. Uh, so I'd be willing to talk more with anyone who's willing to speak. So yeah. I don't know. That's my final thoughts. Yeah. Anything from you? Oh, my my final thought would be that both sides could be guilty of boxing God in. 
So the charismatic side can be guilty of saying, if you are born again, this is what's, it's going to be exciting, there's going to be healings. It's yeah. a, and so that is def, too narrowly defining mm-hmm. what God, how mm-hmm. God works. And I think the other side is very obviously guilty of the same thing, of saying that could not happen today, even mm-hmm. though it happened um, in the scriptures, that... Um, and so I wouldn't want to fall into that camp because I want to I want to maintain the mystery of the working of God. Yeah. So uh, I, I suppose that's that's where I would want to land in the end is to say, does your theology um, create create rules for God, or does it just respond hopefully to what we find in the scriptures and, and having a a desire for um, and an Acts mm. two a Joel two kind of uh, experience um, somewhere in the world. Maybe it's not even our church, but we just hope God is is seen and His glory is is evident in the world in, in amazing ways. And sometimes amazing ways are people doing their devotions every day, mm-hmm. and sometimes the amazing ways are um, a whole nation that turns towards God. Yeah, that's a good good yeah. word to end on. Don't think that the other side is the only one who puts God in a box. Yeah. All right, you guys, we have enjoyed doing this episode and we look forward to being with you again next week. Grace and peace to you all. See you.